Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Max Fawcett, who's a lead columnist for the National Observer, and uh, an old friend of mine. In fact, the, uh, he gave me my first opportunity to write about energy for the Alberta Oil Magazine back, oh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, when he was the editor there. So welcome to the interview, Max. Thank you very much. I, uh, I was going to say I'm still waiting for my royalty check on that, but you, you have actually been good on the royalty check. So, uh, you know, we <laughs> balls on that front. We do what we can. Well, look, today yeah. we're going to be talking about, uh, this is a, we don't often talk about poli Canadian politics in this context, but we're going to be talking about politics as culture war, as opposed to the politics that we historically have been used to in this country. And it's a lot of it is rooted in the oil and gas culture of Alberta. And it, if you, if, and if any of our listeners are not familiar with, uh, with Alberta political culture, El the, the polling data from people like Janet Brown suggests very strongly that the majority of Albertans identify with oil and gas in their cultural identity. As, as Janet said to me in an interview, uh, Albertans are oil and gas. Now, that's less true than it was a few years ago, fair enough. But this is all by way of, uh, of introducing the first part of the, the interview. We're going to talk about Christine Anderson, a German politician who is a member of a far, far right uh, party. She's been a member of the European Parliament since 2019. She was in Canada last week, uh, and it, it ignited a firestorm of, of protest, I guess, particularly um, even the media, uh, the, the right-wing media uh, got on her, got on the uh, CPC case about this because she is generally considered to be a neo-Nazi. And on February 18th, she was uh, there was an event held in for her at the Calgary Petroleum Club, and so the tie-in there is is nice and neat. What's your take on this, Max? Oof, where to, where to begin? Um, you know, I I think it's interesting to see the way that this has kind of split the conservative media ecosystem. And and I had a column out on this on Friday talking about how this is really sort of a, a existential threat to Pierre Poilievre's leadership because his strength in recent polls, his, his strategy has been all around reabsorbing that People's Party flank of the conservative movement, you know, the anti-vaxxers, the very loudly pro-oil and gas folks that kind of bled away from Aaron O'Toole uh, in 2021 and, and came back to the fold under, under Poilievre because of his messaging. Um, and then him coming out belatedly, uh, you know, through Brian Lilly, you know, he didn't say anything on his Twitter feed. He didn't make a, a nifty little video, which he loves to do. He simply passed along a statement to, to Brian Lilly saying, you know, this woman is not acceptable. I wish she'd never come to Canada. We don't have a place for her. I think he said fascist views. And this really upset the People's Party uh, sort of diehards that have that have come home to the roost. You know, never mind Leslin Lewis, who was one of the three MPs who met with Ms. Anderson and, and really hasn't apologized for it at all. Um, she is being openly courted now by Maxime Bernier, because, of course, he would love to have someone in the House of Commons representing his party. But, uh, you know, it, it really puts Polyev in a tricky spot because he is angering the people that he has been sort of wooing over the last little while. And, and you saw this in you know, like I said, the schism in the in the the right wing media ecosystem, where you had people like True North and the Rebel, um, sort of saying, "Well, wait a minute, why are you making them them apologize? Why is this a bad thing that they met with this person? Her views are are fine. What's you know, she's not a, a fascist. Prove to us that she's a fascist." And of course, there's there's plenty of ways to do that. And people have you know sort of sent their receipts out and said, "Well, she said all these things about immigrants, all these things about Muslims." Her party said all these terrible things about the Holocaust, um, but 
but he's in a real tricky spot here because the more he tries to clean up this mess, which you know, I think most right-thinking Canadians would see as a mess, the more he alienates and upsets this sort of 5% of the, of the national vote and maybe, I don't know, 10, 15% of the conservative vote that really likes what Christine Anderson has to say about vaccines, about immigrants, about oil and gas, about all this stuff. And, you know, there's this interesting detail where he said he had never spoken to her and she said she had spoken to him and, and liked him. So, are we going to find out that he has, in fact, spoken to Christine Anderson in the past? Uh, you know, the, the defense that the, the MPs came out with that met with her, though we had no idea who she was, we're, were shocked by her, uh, you know, terrible views. I mean, it's just such obvious nonsense. They knew exactly who she was. One of them had actually cited her in the House of Commons uh, in a debate uh, because she, you know, when, when the prime minister visited the European uh, Parliament, I think it was last year, she gave this very sort of uh, highly publicized speech where she called him out, said he was terrible, this, that, and the other. And it was shared through all the right-wing uh, Twitter accounts and, and media outlets in Canada. So they know exactly who she is. And pretending that they don't is, you know, I think it's already fallen apart, but we'll have to wait and see how much this, how much this damages the coalition that Polyev has been trying to build. Uh, just for non-Canadian listeners, and we have quite a few of them for this podcast, um, Brian Lilly is a cons very conservative a columnist for the uh, Toronto Sun uh, newspaper, uh, Leslie Lewis. Dr. Leslie Lewis is a member of parliament and ran for the leadership of the Canadian Conservative Party. And Christine Anderson, when I was doing my research on her, you know, I've read a few articles. Uh, the BBC said that her uh, party's policies were tinged with Nazism. And so what? Now we're talking about Nazi light? Are we talking about the junior Nazis? And if we are, then we're talking about Nazis. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think that this is something that you can get cute with, you know, like, oh, how 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 fascist are they really? Are they 100 percent fascist or are they just fascist curious, you know, uh, or fascist I, I adjacent? Yeah, a fascist adjacent. I think you have, you know, and certainly the Germans uh, have been sort of drawing a pretty hard line here in terms of calling out this party, calling out its its historical associations and, and things that it said about their past. Um I just don't really understand why this is a hard one for conservatives here in Canada to kind of wrap their heads around that it's that it's bad to be even close to uh, someone like this. And, you know, we've already just looking at my phone, the, the, the whataboutism has already begun. So now we have uh, the Toronto Sun coming out saying that Trudeau's in no position to lecture anyone on this because he's met with all these terrible people. Right. So, OK, sure. Let's let's play this silly little game. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this this is more serious for Polyev internally than it is among the rest of us, because there is a faction within his party that is watching his reaction here very closely. And they are already very pissed off uh, that he called her out and, and called his MPs out for meeting her. So, you know, we may not see what's churning under the surface here, but it, there, there is a fair bit. And I just wanted to just clarify one thing for your listeners. Leslie Lewis is not a medical doctor. Uh, and one of one of my one of my greatest joys uh, when I was a magazine editor was stripping non-medical doctors of their honorific. Uh, so I, I, I think we should do that here. She's not a she's not Dr. Leslie Lewis. She's Leslie Lewis, someone who has a Ph.D. Um, let's let's Fair reserve enough. the doctor for the people who can actually heal us and make us uh, make us better. Fair enough. I, now, I want to draw the parallel here between with uh, Danielle Smith, who is the conservative premier of Alberta, because. She and her predecessor, Jason Kenney, uh, have have, been, have trod the same fine line that uh, that uh, Polyev is is treading now, and and that is in order their their coalition includes these you know the very far right flank, uh, the anti vaxxers and the you know the the uh, uh, the Nazi adjacent. And they're the ones essentially that pushed Kenny out of the premiership back in, in the summer. And, and Smith courted them very strongly. And they're, mm -hmm. and they're, and that group is very strong within the, the oil and gas industry, particularly, maybe not, I, you'd have a better sense because you live in Calgary, you'd have a better sense of, of their strength there, but certainly in the rural areas, they're very, very strong. And Smith has had her own problems you're keeping this coalition together. So it, it seems like this is the, is the, the game plan is, is somehow you have to, you have to uh, 
make nice with the far right and then somehow hive off enough of the the right center to make your coalition your winning coalition uh at, at uh, come election time yeah i think I, mean, I think that is the strategy um i i would say it hasn't worked uh in a general election really ever um i mean kenny in 2019 i suppose you could argue did that but i i, I don't think that the the fringy fringersons were quite as ascendant in the sort of initial version of the UCP, certainly as they are today, they run the show today. I think, uh, you know, in 2019, his, his coalition was much bigger and much, I mean, he would hate to hear this, but much redder uh, than it is today. Today it is dark blue uh, under Daniel Smith. And, uh, and so I don't think you can sort of count that as a victory for the, you know, uh, appeal to the far right strategy. He was appealing to the mainstream in a lot of respects, uh, which is, you know, why he, I think, won the majority that he won. And if Daniel Smith somehow manages to pull out the election provincially in the spring, it will be a much thinner majority because she, she doesn't have the breadth of his uh, appeal. Uh, her coalition is, is the same one that Polyev is trying to build, which is we want to win basically with the narrowest you know, uh, majority possible. They're not trying to win a Brian Mulroney in 1984 majority. They're trying to eke out you know, uh, the, the, the thinnest minority or the thinnest win they can with the pieces they have in place because they are terrified of what would happen if they carved off that far right. If they just said, you know what, Leslin Lewis, uh, Maxime Bernier, have at it. We don't want you. You're not welcome here. And, and they appealed more to centrists to you know blue liberals to red tories they, they just don't have the courage to try that strategy um and i think you know it is entirely possible that that the federal liberals uh who are sort of leaking uh leaking oil all over the road right now uh electorally you know they're making a lot of very bad decisions they could hand the election to polyev but i think it's just as likely that the beatings will continue until morale improves when it comes to the strategy they're going to keep trying it it is going to keep failing and they're going to keep going. Well, what, you know, let's let's try it one more time. Um, I think the only way that this strategy sort of gets taken, the party, either provincially in Alberta or federally, really gets beaten back. You know, in like a 2011 liberal, you know, finishing in third place kind of outcome. And I honestly can't see that anytime soon. So I think we're sort of stuck in this place uh, for the foreseeable future, and it's not great. Let's talk about the extent to which these the politics that we're talking about are rooted in culture war politics that are reminiscent of what the the Republicans in the U.S. started back under Newt Gingrich in the in the early 90s and how that that functions within the kind of oil and gas tribe within Alberta and 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 really to a lesser extent across Canada, because. If you're watching Danielle Smith try to work this coalition that, that you're talking about, is absolutely fascinating because she say one thing, then she walks it back. She's got the the, the narratives down fairly pat. You know, you, you, you can see her, her public comments or you know read the letters that she writes to the prime minister on a regular basis. They're almost pen pals now, and. Yeah. And and it's hilarious. I mean, it's it's like the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers writes her her correspondence. You know, it's just, they, she's got the industry narratives down. But there's a tribe in Alberta that is is amorphous. It's not really organized, but the culture was so pervasive that support for the industry, support for her politics around that, just seems to be spontaneous. And a lot of times, it'll give it'll give birth to. Uh, uh, oil and gas, uh, astroturf organizations. You know, I was thinking of Robbie Picard and, and the I Love the Oil Sands campaign back in, you know, five, six, seven years ago, that sort of thing. And all of that, it's just, it seems to be been tossed into a blender. Tribal politics, culture war, oil and gas, you know, Alberta's conservative history. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's an interesting interesting vein to mine and there's there's certainly lots of it there i i think it all started in 2014 you know i think there was a sense you know i moved to calgary in 2014 um 2014 2013 um and, and there was just this sense that 
everything was coming up Millhouse for for the for people in Calgary. Like 100 bucks a barrel oil. You know the the, the you know oil sands mines were being built. No real sort of constraint on that. Government policy was fairly supportive. Like the world was their oyster. And then the Saudis decided to crash the market, and they couldn't cope with with this sort of new reality. And you know prices went down. Then the NDP won, then the Liberals won with Justin Trudeau. It was just this sort of bang, bang, bang series of things that they didn't think could happen uh, to them. And they've sort of been looking for a, a way to explain and understand their world ever since. And, and so it, a lot of it flows into that sort of grievance politics, that this was done to them, right? This was not something that happened in the world that they had never would have had any control over. This was done to them because people don't like them. Right. Uh, and it's just this the same sort of um, victimhood that I think animates sort of Trumpist Republican culture. And, and, you know, that that has completely consumed the Republican Party in the United States. There are very few Republicans left who are sort of country first, um, you know, principled conservatives. You know, they've all been driven out of the party, um, you know, whether they're, uh, you know, Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, like they're, they're all gone. Um, it is a grievance party to its core now. And I think you're right to sort of date it back to Gingrich. He was the one that really kind of planted that seed, but you know, where it germinated in Canada was, was in 2014, 2015. Uh, you know, it's funny, like you, you look at the, the freedom convoy and, and I think there's a lot of people who sort of assume that it kind of sprung up out of nowhere or that it was this organic response to, to vaccine mandates. And it was just, uh, it was just the the you know the the uh, the convoy 2.0 from I guess it was 2019 or 2018 when you know they they sent a bunch of tractors and trucks to Ottawa to complain about oil and gas policies uh, you know and of course Andrew Shear when he was the leader met with them uh, supported them it was all the same cast of characters you know Tamara Leach was there uh, Chris Barber I think was there all the people that are prominent in the convoy were prominent in that first sort of national convoy uh, to Ottawa. And it all has its roots in oil and gas. Um, you know, these are people with lots of money, uh, especially sort of the, the sort of older executive ownership class. Um, they feel hard done by, they feel like their, their retirement that should have been a hundred million dollars is now only $10 million and they want someone to blame. And Justin Trudeau has been a magnificently, um, attractive candidate for them. Uh, you know, the funny part to me, and I sort of have this conversation a lot when I talk to friends of mine in Ontario or Quebec or the Maritimes or wherever, you know, you talk to people in Alberta and you in the oil and gas industry and you ask them like, do you think that, that you're listened to? Does the country uh, pay enough attention to your needs and interests? They go, oh, of course not. No, we're totally ignored. We're, you know, we're hard done by, nobody listens to us. We, we get taken advantage of, it's awful. And then you look from outside that bubble at the way the liberals have sort of catered to the oil and gas industry, you know, buying pipelines, getting big LNG terminals built. You look at uh, the way that federal politics, the federal conservative party revolves around the needs of the oil and gas industry, even though from a strategic perspective, the conservatives would be wise to just basically write off Alberta and say, well, thank you for those seats. We know you're not going to vote for anyone else. And we're going to focus on the GTA in Montreal. They can't do that because they're totally enthralled to this culture, this movement, this sort of cast of characters um, that that is from the oil and gas industry. So it's just this weird sort of uh, bizarro kind of situation. And isn't that rooted in tribal politics? I mean, the whole point of the tribe is is not to compromise and and meet with other. You know, in politics, you're always looking for coalitions and like-minded people, and where can you compromise and and find middle ground uh, electorally. Uh, but in a tribe, you try to expand the tribe, and you keep hammering away. And and if your a tribe isn't growing enough or it isn't growing at all, you just get louder about it, and you, and you become more extreme until you do attract uh, more people into your tribe. And and that seems to be the case. It just you're the political scientist here. Um, wow. Well, you you have a master's I'm degree more... in political scientist, and I do not. So sure, sure. Comparatively so, speaking, yeah. right. So, what's the difference between politics as you and I understood it uh, prior to the rise of tribal, and then tribal politics? What are, what are the differences here? Well, I, th I mean, I think you put your finger on it, which is, you know, it, it is 
less concerned with compromise and and shifting where the center is to find the most number of votes, which is brokerage politics, uh, which you know defines continues to define the Liberal Party, which is why it's so successful, and he did define the Conservative Party for a long time until Preston Manning cleaved off the sort of the the prairie base and and sort of created this this populist movement, right? Um, I, I think populist. I'm not going to use tribal, but populist um, political movements, like you said, they're, they they see compromise as a form of surrender, as a form of diluting the the ideological purity of their movement. And you know, in some respects, the Conservative Party of Canada right now is a lot like the New Democrats uh, federally. They they are not as interested in winning and forming government and f- maximizing the number of votes that they can attract as they are in purity. Right? They want to, they want to express their beliefs in the purest and most uncompromising way possible, and that's why you see this, this sort of dance with conservative leaders where they campaign on the right. You know, they campaign in in the sort of populist tent as as uh, uncompromisingly as possible, and then when they go out into the world, they try to compromise a little bit, but they keep constantly having their leash yanked by the by the base that are going, hey, hey you can't do that, you can't go over there. That's not where you belong. And we really only have one brokerage party right now in federal politics, uh, one sort of traditional political party, quote unquote, and it's the, it's the Liberal Party of Canada. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of very valid criticisms of Trudeau and, and the way he has sort of pushed things to the left, but his genius, you know, whether it was him or Jerry, Jerry Butts or who, but their genius moment was to understand that the political center, which is what the, the liberals have always tried to occupy, was further to, further to the left in 2015 than anyone understood. And they they basically outflanked the NDP, they got to the NDP's left, and they won the election. I just don't think that the Conservative Party right now is capable of, of doing something like that. If they saw that there was an opportunity, you know, that they would win 180 seats if they behaved like red Tories, I don't think they could do it. I, I just think that they are too wedded to that that base, to the to the, you know the 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 oil and gas culture, um, and to their to their tribe, to to be able to be that nimble. Um, whether or not that's a good thing, I think depends on where you sit. But uh, you're absolutely right that this is a different version of the Conservative Party than even Stephen Harper was trying to build. You know, Stephen Harper, uh, for all of his uh, foibles and flaws, and you know he did he did good things as well, but his the reason why he governed for 10 years is because he ran that party like a brokerage party, not like a movement. And we'll see if anyone can can get them back there. I want to get your opinion on a question that I've asked any number of political scientists, people like Professor Jared Wesley uh, at the University of Alberta. And the question is, because you talked about the rise of you know uh, populism. So we've I've interviewed Frank Graves from Ecos Research and David Coletto from uh Abacus data about this. And they all agree that one of the impetuses to populist politics is disruption. And what do we have now? You know, we, we've, you and I have, uh, I've interviewed you, we've talked about, you know, the global energy transition and, and now in the twenties, you know, just how disruptive it's been. And of course, who's the major, uh, who suffers most uh, from that disruption was the oil and gas industry. And and if, and Coletto talks about you know his data shows the rise of uh, conservative anxious conservatives even anxious progressives who would then become open to the to the populist message it wouldn't normally be but they are now because of this anxiety. So to what extent is this disruption that's caused at the at the global energy level and felt in in the in the Canadian energy system particularly in Alberta what role does that play in sort of fomenting this? The kind of, you know, tribal and, and populist politics we're talking about. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. Um, I, I don't think that this version of conservative politics would have worked either provincially in Alberta or federally, um, you know, in 2012, when things were good, when people felt like the ground under their feet was firm. Um, they wouldn't be uh, looking for answers in the way that they do now. But, you know, you combine the changes that are underway, which we, you know, you and I have been covering as journalists for almost a decade now, and and they're they're enormous. Uh, people have every right to be anxious, to feel like things are moving too fast, like they're shifting, because they are. Um, 
that doesn't mean that you you know you uh, yell at the future or you know buy another fossil fuel vehicle just to own the libs. Like there 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 are constructive and unconstructive reactions to that, but the anxiety is real, and I think one of the the errors that progressives tend to make. Uh, you saw this in the United States with Hillary Clinton and their campaign, and I think you see it with the federal liberals sometimes. Is they kind of just tell people to get over it, right? You know, and it's because a lot of progressives live in cities. They're technically technologically savvy. They're 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 more comfortable with the change than conservatives are. Conservatives, by their very nature, don't really like change. Um, they often fear change and. When you throw as much change at them as I think Albertans have had to deal with over the last 10 years, you know, uh, crashing oil prices, climate policy, governments they never thought they'd see, a pandemic, like it's a lot to digest. Um, and I think people like Danielle Smith, uh, people like Pierre Polyev are very skilled at mining that anxiety. Uh, you know, we, we talk about rage farming. Um, you could almost call it anxiety farming, right, in some respects, that they're that they're amplifying people's fears and then and then attaching them to their own political fortunes. Um, and that is, I think, to some extent working for them. I don't think it's working for the people who are anxious. I think they feel more anxious, they feel more scared. I, you know, I feel kind of bad for folks who who kind of live in that that anxious space about where things are going. Um, and, and you know, that they're being kind of exploited by these conservative politicians. But you know, definitely, uh, it is the driving force. I think in in sort of pop populist politics right now is is this over overarching sense of anxiety about what the future holds and what it means for them. And then when you get the federal liberals coming out and saying, "Well, here's our just transition plan," like, come on, guys, like that that just feeds right into that sense that things are being done to you by others. Um, and if and if a conservative politician comes along and says, "I'll fight that." I'll, you know, I'll, I'll throw a pie in their face. You're probably going to vote for them. Uh, even if the pie doesn't do anything, at least someone threw a pie in their face. And that was the exact same thing that got Trump elected in all those Rust Belt states was, you know, the, the message from Democrats was, well, this is happening and there's not much we can do, which is probably true. And Trump's message was, oh, I'm going to bring all these jobs back. Uh, I alone can fix it. And I think, you know, those voters said, well, the Trump guy may, you know, Maybe he's full of full of you know what, but at least he's going to try. At least he's going to do something. And and you know I think the the changes you're seeing now in those states where where people are starting to get excited about green technology, they're starting you know battery plants are being built in in Michigan and places like that. That's what we have to be doing in this country to to offset this anxiety. You don't offset the anxiety by saying don't be anxious. You offset the anxiety by replacing it with excitement right? About the future, about, hey, this is going to be actually really great for, for you and your family and your kids. Um, but we're not there yet on that. You know, the, 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 the liberals for all of their talents politically are just hot garbage when it comes to messaging, uh, especially around energy issues, especially in the prairies. Um, and so, you know, we've got, a, we've got a ways to go there. I'd have to agree with you. And, and uh, uh, you and I have had this conversation before about how the only antidote to, or the only effective response to fear-based narratives are hope and optimism narratives. And the, the liberals try hard. You know, I'll give them credit for that. Uh, I, I've been to enough press conferences with, you know, they, they, they try. It's the lack of a co coherent narrative to say to people, you know what, we have a plan. Here's how we're going to attract capital into these new industries and, and we'll shore up as much as we can, the old industries, you know, like the oil and gas extraction. And we're actually going to create better jobs, more jobs, and better jobs for you, not just for you, but for your family, for your community. You're going to be, you're going to be okay. It's a little bumpy, you know. I don't know how long the bumpy is going to last. Could be another five years. We don't know, but we're here. Got your backs, and we have, we have a plan for the future. And that message uh, uh, doesn't come across. It's particularly uh, doesn't come across. Is not well understood, not articulated in Alberta. And then that, of course leaves all those anxious folks open to the fear-based narratives and the rage and anxiety farming of politicians like Danielle Smith. Well, yeah, exactly. And the other challenge is that if you're, you know, part of the challenge is they have two seats in Alberta um, and none in Saskatchewan. So they're just not here. They're not present. Um, you know, as good as the MPs are here, uh, you know, they're, 
Randy Boston is a very good communicator, but you know, you don't have someone like Seamus O'Regan who I think moving him out of natural resources was selfishly uh, a big loss because he was such a gifted communicator. He was so good at selling and explaining the future, uh, not in a sort of, you know, scammy way, but in just a, he got people excited about it. He, he, he'd level with them. He'd worked in the industry. He was from an oil and gas producing place. He understood their anxieties. We don't have that right now. Uh, the other challenge that they face is the media ecosystem here is just enormously unsupportive uh, for any sort of messaging. You know, you, if, you, if you're the, the federal government and you're trying to get people excited about the energy transition, the new jobs, things that are happening, you have to go through the funnels of Don Braid and Rick Bell and David Staples and it just all these, these narrators who are incredibly unreliable when it comes to this stuff. And so, you know, even if they found a cure for cancer, I, I almost feel like they, that those people would find a way to cr- take a dump on it and be like, well, it took them long enough, you know, <laughs> didn't cure my cancer, you know, five years ago. Thanks a lot, Trudeau. Like there's just in some respects, no winning. And I don't think that they have understood in the way that conservatives really have the necessity of building their own ecosystem for for disseminating information. I don't like it. I wish everyone read the same newspapers, watched the same TV shows, and we had this sort of common conversation. But the way that the internet works, the way social media works, you have to build your own apparatus. And conservatives have done that with, you know, True North, with um, Canada Proud. Rebel Media. Rebel Media. And everyone's singing from the same songbook. And Progressives, you know, try to go through mainstream, decaying mainstream institutions that either aren't capable of disseminating their, their, you know, their, their information or, or actively opposed to it. And you're going to lose that every time, 10 out of 10 times, you're going to lose that fight. And, you know, I think we are seeing the results of that in the sort of conversation we have about energy and, and climate change and the energy transition here in Alberta, where it's still just so fear-based, so um, just stuck in in a, a mindset that is not, I don't think, constructive for anyone. And speaking of the, the, the right-wing media ecosystem, um, I can see how that that is used to, in fact, reinforce the notion of a tribe, both federally and, and provincially in, in Alberta, and try to expand that. Because, you know, rebel media, uh, despite my, you know, many criticisms of them over the year, uh, without my permission, stuck me on their email list. And I decided to stick. Hey, what are these guys saying? I want, I'm, I'm kind of curious. And what I see over and over and over again are those fear-based narratives. I mean, yes, also some grifting. And, you know, they, of course, they're always asking for money for this campaign or the, the next campaign. So it's a great business model. But nevertheless, it's that fear-based campaign. And, and it and you can see how over time, uh, because they're so good at it, and they're so uh, and the, the volume of stuff that they put out, it, you can see why the tribe. There's a you would think that maybe the tribe would increase, how it would grow, uh, and it's it's very difficult to, as you say, communicate other narratives, and and you and I would both know because we have over the course of our career in Alberta advanced more. Uh, hope and optimism narratives and it's a tough sell getting getting to that audience in the first place is is very difficult now you you've got the observer uh you've been with the observer a couple of years now you have a bigger audience but uh you know energy media's audience is still very specialized and 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 much smaller and it's tough it it, is it's just tough yeah i mean it's it's like you know you're selling a product at the grocery store and your product is better it's tastier, it's, it's more nutritious, but the grocery store insists on putting it on the bottom corner shelf where no one can see it. And they give all the other shelf space, the premium shelf space to the garbage equivalent uh, that's popular and people are already familiar with. Which one do you think is gonna sell more? You know? <laughs> I, I, uh, feel, I feel like I'm Betamax watching VHS to uh, destroy my market. Well, that's, I regret to inform you that's a reference that is increasingly lost on people, but I do take your point. Uh, I mean, you know, I look at Ezra, uh, reluctantly, uh, from time to time. And I, yeah, I'm sure this is where he drew his inspiration from, but, but he behaves like he builds, he runs his business. He behaves like an American televangelist. Oh, right? I agree. A hundred percent, hundred percent. It's know? a televangelist grift that's been around since the sixties and seventies. And, and he does it well. Um, he, you know, he, he makes the, the people in his community feel like victims, like he alone can help them save them. 
that there are bad people who are out to do bad things to them, um, that he alone, they alone know the truth. Like there's just so many parallels between those two things. And I'm, I would bet very heavily it's because he probably grew up watching it on TV or, or at some point cottoned onto it. But, um, you know, that, that is far more compelling in terms of building and sustaining a tribe than trying to communicate factual information in a cold and dispassionate way. Um, you know, like it's just, it's just apples and donkeys and uh, it has an effect on, on the, the way that people think about energy and think about politics in Alberta. Uh, and I don't think that's gonna change going forward because you know, the, the, the once venerable Calgary Herald, the once venerable Edmonton Journal, like they're circling the drain. They are years, possibly very few years away from going away. Uh, and what do we think fills the void? Uh, I don't think it's going to be dispassionate policy analysis, um, because I think we both know that doesn't pay the bills. So it's not a, it's not a great situation uh, from that perspective. And I don't know that it's going to get much better anytime soon. And there's a very good argument for it needing to go away, or at least, let me put it this way, uh, you know, and many of my listeners will know that I've argued that in this in the current global energy transition, the 2020s are the decade of disruption. And I've interviewed experts who say, look, Canada's got, Alberta's got two to five years maybe to to put in place a plan and go after some of these strategic uh, it, uh, industries, clean energy industries, you know, like whether it's critical minerals and battery metals, uh, refining and that, that sort of thing. There's, there's just too much competition globally for it. And if Alberta doesn't get organized, it's going to miss out on these opportunities. Well, the problem is that the conversation around the, the energy transition and the industrial, the clean energy industrial transformation that got kicked off by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, all of that urgency is ignored because we're busy fighting these these sort of tribal tribal battles and and so if you can't create political space for the policy that you need urgently then you're going to miss you're going to miss the boat and i think i agree ultimately, yeah anyway no no i agree and i think you know that was interesting to see alex Porbay, uh you know ex-ceo of sonovas now because i guess he's taking a, a stronger hand in this kind of conversation come out and kind of call out both the feds and, and the provincial government and say like, hey, can we actually just talk about getting the policy in place here so that we can move forward? Like, can you guys stop making this uh, a sort of tribal political fight? Um, and I do think he was speaking, you know, I, I, I have been very skeptical of, of the Pathways Alliance of which he is a part and their their actual commitment to spending their own money. I think someone on Twitter said, you know, the real net zero thereafter is spending net zero of their own dollars on it. And I, I do think that's true, but, um, you know, I, I think there is some, there are some people in the industry who understand exactly what you're saying, that this is a perishable opportunity. This will go away if we do not act in the next little while. Like if we spend the next four years fighting over, you know, uh, tribal energy politics and, and, you know, does Justin Trudeau love the oil sands enough? We're going to wake up one day and realize, oh, the Americans and the and the Europeans and the Chinese have completely eaten our lunch here, and we can pick over the scraps, but that's all there is left. Um, and then, you know, the problem there is that makes everything else worse. That makes the politics worse. That makes the the, the discourse worse. It makes everything worse. So political death spiral. You know, it's a death spiral. And so, you know, I would strongly encourage all of the oil and gas executives who are listening right now, which is probably zero or, or maybe one or two, but, you know, in all seriousness, the folks at Suncor, the folks at Synovus, the folks that, you know, Murray Edwards, hello, the folks that run, that really run the show in terms of, of the big companies with the big money, they need to stop funding these sort of little excursions into, you know, pissing on Justin Trudeau's leg and invest in a better conversation around this stuff, or they're going to be the ones that lose at the end of the day. You know, they need to put their weight and their their financial capital in play right away and say here is here's what we need and here's how we're going to make it happen and clean up the conversation a little bit uh you know yank the chains of the politicians who are who are uh you know uh sort of vandalizing uh the conversation around this issue and try to get us to as good of a policy space as we can my concern is that they are so captured and so blinkered uh and so sort of politicized by this all that they can't see that 
Right. Let me well let but me they, give you an let me give you an example of that. I, uh, sure. The Husky Energy was absorbed by Synovus uh, two three years ago, and yeah. uh, one of my sources uh, happened to be an executive at Husky, and so was you know got a crash course in Synovus uh, uh, corporate culture. And she says, and this is relevant to what you just said about about Alex Purbe, the former now CEO of Synovus. She said, inside the corporate boardroom, inside the the, the C suite, and inside the the executive and the, the management team, there is the fundamental belief that Justin Trudeau and the Liberals want to kill the oil and gas industry. Whatever whatever Alex Purbe says in the public, whatever he doesn't matter. That's the culture. And they talk about it openly and they talk about it around the board table. And so th this gets back to tribal politics. Whatever it, The message they're sending when they're sitting around the, the, the Calgary Petroleum Club sipping scotch is very different than what they're saying publicly, I, I think. So for what it's worth. Yeah. And, and if, you know, I, th I think your source is probably correct. And, and certainly I've heard similar things. And if that's true, that's it's pathetic. It's sad. It's embarrassing. Um, you know, I always like to say back in the day that you know if Enbridge had hired a couple of graduate students from BC to explain how how land rights and indigenous communities work there they could have saved themselves billions of dollars on gateway and this is sort of a similar thing they they right they they cost themselves so much money by staying in their bubble where it's comfortable uh, rather than exposing themselves to the, the bigger and broader world and you know I I, I have to admit, I was I was dismayed by who Suncor tapped as their new CEO. You know, Suncor has always been, I think, viewed as a more progressive of the bigger oil companies. You know, a, a little more. You know, they have the Petro Canada sort of DNA in there somewhere. There, there is, I think, a sense that they are a little more progressive on climate. And then they haul Imperial Oil's retired CEO out of retirement, pull him off the golf course, to get him to fix their safety issues. Now, I, I have heard that Rich Kruger is very good at safety, uh, and that's great. But that is not a compelling uh, message to send to anyone who's concerned about climate change, that you bring in the guy who's from a company that has never taken climate change seriously. Uh, you know, that, you know, and its parent company, ExxonMobil, uh, has done some extremely shady things uh, on this front. You know, they talked up their bioalgae for a decade, and then just recently came out and admitted that it was a giant uh, giant dud, you know. I, it does. It is not the message uh, that I was hoping they would send, and I think it speaks to the mindset, like you said, of the people around the petroleum club table. Uh, what they really think, and, and what they really think is that, like you said, Justin Trudeau is the the cause of all their problems. Well, I, I think the the way we can tie a bow around this conversation is that the uh, much of the tribal politics that we're talking about is rooted in in oil and gas. And there's a very unhealthy uh, feedback loop here. And unfortunately, while it may, they, you know, the Conservative parties outside of the Conservative Party of Canada may not be on a trajectory to win the next election, uh, the United, you know, the UCP in Alberta arguably is, which would only make, would, would continue this sort of tribal politics and make things worse. And we can get in, that's a conversation for another day, but uh, Dan, you know, Danielle Smith's uh, relationship to the oil and gas industry and pushing their agenda uh, politically and, and policy-wise. But this situation yeah, is I not mean, gonna resolve itself. This look, this is trouble. It's, it's trouble for Alberta and it's trouble for Canada. And I don't see, I don't see an exit strategy here. I don't see how we're gonna, uh, I don't see a solution. I, I don't in the in the near term. I mean, I think if the NDP were to win the provincial election and if they kind of summoned the courage of Dave Barrett in BC and just said, we're going to take the four years that we're in government and we're going to fix things that need to be fixed. We're going to implement a sort of structural change in how we do things here. And if, you know, if voters want to vote us out in four years time, they have that right, but we are going to do what is best for this province. Um, but I, you know, I, I get no indication that the NDP is either fluent enough in this issue or courageous enough to enter this space and have this conversation. It feels to me like their argument is, well, we're actually even better at advocating for the oil and gas exactly. industry than Danielle Smith is. And no one is going to get excited about Diet Coke when there's regular Coke on the table, right? It just is not a compelling proposition. What they need to be doing is getting in there and saying, the oil and gas CEOs are not 
in this for you. They're not going to save you. If this thing goes sideways, they will move to Phoenix. They will move to Kelowna. They will leave, and they will leave you holding a flaming bag of shit. And they need to do a better job of, of standing, you know, go back to their roots as a, as a workers' party and say, look, they can stand up for the executives. They can, they can give $100 million to these, these, these big companies that should have cleaned up their mess but didn't. We're going to take that money and give it to workers. We're going to give it to you so that you and your family have better jobs, better training, better opportunities. I think that's a winning message, and I think it's a winning message in Calgary. But it's one that requires them to enter the space, know that they're going to get people yelling at them about, oh, you were at a rally in 2013, Rachel, and you stood next to someone holding a sign, and just push it out and say, that's fine. We're going to, we're going to tell our story. We're going to communicate our message. We're going to fight here. I think instead they're going to fight on healthcare. They're going to fight on education. They're going to fight on how terrible Danielle Smith is. And it pains me to say it, but I think if they fight there, they're going to lose. Well, I, I've argued that uh, the NDP and Rachel Notley are UCP light on energy. And uh, I think the title of one of my columns was uh, Rachel Notley has no energy game. She can't talk energy in Calgary. And the response of the party was to blackball me for a month. You know, I think that's that story is kind of instructive about where the NDP is these days. And they're they're I think they're better prepared uh, than they were in uh, 20 uh, in 2015. Uh, they've done or some 2019 consultation. or 2019. That's right. But uh, but I don't think I don't think they're any better prepared. I don't think Notley's any better at really talking energy, strategizing energy, the politics of energy, particularly in Calgary, uh, than she was in 2015 or 2019. And that, uh, given the, the the votes that she has to pull in Calgary, as you say, that's going to be a big problem for her. Agreed. And, you know, they, they have two candidates uh, in very crucial swing ridings, uh, you know, in Najwan Aljunaid um, and Samir Kayande, who, who they can talk energy. They're very smart. They know they're, they understand this issue up and down. I've said repeatedly, they are, they are bigger and better brains on this subject than anyone. That the UCP can put out put out front, but what, I haven't seen them challenge, you know, Sonia Savage to a debate. I haven't seen them really kind of push the fact that they have these experts who are running for the party. You know, instead they have those candidates talking about healthcare, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's just you know you've got you've got a knife and you're trying to use it as a spoon. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But um, yeah, you know, I. I, I this is this is I mean I've been very I've been very noisy about this for the last little while, uh, you know TBD if I get blackballed or not. But um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who are just frustrated by their inability to speak the language that they have to speak to win the seats they need to win. Right. Well, I can tell you I can I can tell you from the feedback uh, from my NDP uh, readers and uh, and viewers is that uh, there's a fair amount of frustration out amongst their their base. Uh, with that approach, the approach that they're taking. And I agree with you, uh, Najwan, of course, you and I both know well and, and very articulate. And so the problem is it, it, they're not being put out there by the party. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the party itself, the strategists uh, have decided that they're going to put a gag on the two people who who would be their best, uh, their best weapons in the, uh, in the race, which is, but as you say, they're going to run on other issues, and uh, again, a, a case of tribal politics um, operating in such a way that it restricts the political conversation, the the, the the energy conversation that needs to be had, and and then also delays all of the necessary policy adjustments and so on that Alberta so desperately needs to take full advantage of the energy transition and mitigate against all that risk that to the oil and gas industry. So it's a mess uh, at this point in the game. I don't, there's, there's no easy, easy pathway out of it. And uh, the election is going to be, unless something happens, it's going to be in May. And I guess we will see how this all plays out. I mean, the thing that I cling on to, the thing I hold on to is that politics, notwithstanding, if the NDP can win, they have shown in the past that they, they are able to bring together the right people, good experts, listen to the experts, good, put good policy in place. I mean, the climate leadership plan, I have, I have criticized the politics around it many times, and I, I still think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned there, but the policy was magnificent, magnificent. Uh, 
And I have every confidence that if they have four years in power, they will get this thing right. I really do believe that. It's just getting them to that point, right? It's the it's the politics leading to the policy. That I couldn't agree more. What they did from 2015 to 2019 is take a, a, a acknowledged experts like uh, Professor Andrew Leach, economist at the University of Alberta, put them in charge of an advisory panel or a commission of something. Then when they got recommendations back for whether it was climate policy or diversification policy, they would ad adopt some or all of them. And and all of the experts I interviewed during that period said, uh, and many of them were economists who were hardly progressive when wouldn't probably vote NDP, but said, look, the policy was, process was great. The policy is great. It needs to be supported and implemented. And I have no doubt that, you know, if, if they get elected again in, in May, that they would take the same the same process uh, that they did previously, but getting there. And we'll we'll see. And then, you know, just to make this so this doesn't sound so, you know, like we're pro NDP, it would be really nice if the if the UCP would somehow put in place a process where they actually put you know, developed coherent energy policy and didn't just simply, you know, flip through cap press releases, uh, you know, to come up with their policy. You know, that... I mean, if wishes were fishes, uh, you know, I, I, in my imaginary world, uh, you know, the, the, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada is Michael Chong, uh, pre his recent sort of weird polyavization where he's now talking about LNG, but, you know, someone like that, who's smart, who's sophisticated, who sees all the, all sides and, 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 you know, provincially, you know, maybe Jason Kenney never merges those two parties and we get, you know, someone like Jim Prentice or someone of that ilk, uh, then yeah, we could have conservative parties who have conservative values and conservative beliefs, but who don't trade in conspiracy theories, who don't trade in just sort of ludicrous denials of reality uh, and who aren't engaging in this sort of constant need to, to anger and scare their voters. Uh, we're, we're starting to sound like a couple of conservatives pining for the past when that used to be the norm. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, unfortunately, I think that ship has sailed, that train has left the station, pick your metaphor. Um, but, you know, uh, all eyes on on the provincial election. I think that is our best and only hope. And and look, if conservatives want to throw Dan throw Danielle Smith out of the party and replace her with a policy wonk, I would cheer. I would stand up and be be very very congratulatory about that. But I think that's about as likely as me, uh, you know, playing in the NBA. So uh, let's let's not let's not hang on to hopes that don't really exist. Indeed. Well, Max, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. Thank you.